0: Hey
1: and welcome back to the new season of Shade with me Lou Mensah This season, we will be reflecting on the power of the image within the civil rights movement. And my guests include founding members of Black Lives Matter, photographers and editors from publications such as Time Magazine and ID, curators and art critics. And together, we will be reflecting on the imagery and the stories that came from the Black Lives Matter 2020 uprisings with the people who created them. And I want to say a big thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I'm honoured to have you all involved in this show and supporting this work and elevating our stories. For as little as £1 a month, you can become a Shade patron and join others in supporting this work and elevating our stories. So go to patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast to become a patron. Okay, so here we go. Episode 7, The Black Lives Matter... Raised Fist Salute In conversation with artist Nicola Green Support for Shades Black Images Matter series comes from Chloris, creators of organic, superior grade CBD formulations. I talk with the co-founder Kim quite often about our holistic approach, not only to health, but also to our children's education, an education that nurtures an interest and investment in the world that we all share. And part of Cloris's investment is being a long-term partner of the charity Help Refugees. Cloris' co-founder, Pedram, has spent many years working with refugees as an interpreter. Kim said of our collaboration that it's crucial to support platforms that engage in important conversations surrounding race, as Shay does so brilliantly. So go to ChlorisCBD.com to find out more about the range and for information on help refugees. And sign up to support Shade through Patreon and you'll receive a Chloris subscriber gift. Throughout history, many communities have raised a fist as a symbol of resistance and unity. The raised fist is believed to have originated with Ishtar, the ancient Assyrian goddess of love, war, and fertility, who raised her fist to signify strength in the face of violence. It has since been adopted by different groups during the last century. From the 1917 Russian revolutionaries, to the Industrial Workers of the World, or the IWW, the far left paramilitary organisation affiliated with the Communist Party of Germany during the Weimar Republic. And the first salute was brought back to the States after the Spanish Civil War, where 45,000 anti-fascist volunteers went to fight with the Spanish Republicans in the international brigades, including 2,800 Americans who formed the African-American Lincoln Brigade. The Lincoln Brigade veterans returned to the States and were heavily involved in the civil rights movement. They desegregated swimming pools, ran NAACP chapters, and registered voters. And their anti racism fitted the work of the Black Panther movement. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale raised their fists to exhort members of the Black Panther Party. And now we're moving on to hear my conversation with artist Nicola Green, who used the Black Power salute, the clenched raised fist of Barack Obama in her work. Nicola Green is renowned for gaining unprecedented access to iconic personalities from the world of politics, religion and culture, including collaborations with Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama. And in 2008, Nicola Green gained unprecedented artistic access to Obama's presidential campaign. She had a front row seat to historic events from Obama's DNC nomination speech to inauguration. Nicola was behind the scenes taking photographs, making sketches and having conversations with press, staff and citizens. Inspired by her own mixed heritage and multi-faith family, she creates and preserves religious, social and cultural heritage for future generations. Recording these events as they happen and investing thousands of hours of academic and artistic research, she builds and curates substantial archives. Her series, In Seven Days, is the resulting seven pieces of work that came from the time that she spent with Obama. In Seven Days is in the permanent collections of the National Portrait Gallery, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., the Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York, the Library of Congress, Washington, D.C., and in both the International Slavery Museum and the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. I spoke with Nicola about the process of creating this series and she shares how her own family influences this work. So Nicola this season we are contemplating representation in art through the lens of the imagery that came from the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests and I was wondering if during this time you noticed a shift in the discussions that you were having either at the studio or with clients regarding representation?
2: Well yes absolutely I think like Uh, most people the period of lockdown and the Black Lives Matter protests had a huge impact and I don't you know I think pretty much all the professional conversations I had with colleagues other artists museum curators and so on um, you know it came up and it was sort of front and center of people's Uh, minds. I'm not sure if that's uh, partly because it's, you know, at the core of my issues of identity, race and difference are at the core of my practice. And I've been sort of making work, my own work, but also setting up all kinds of different uh, initiatives and so on for years. But yes, I think that also I really, the big uh, there was a big shift also i found in friends and family and most particularly in white people that i know who suddenly for the first time ever would raise it with me as a subject and mm-hmm. and even very close family members who i think had never felt able or didn't have the language or sort of you know uh, felt worried about how they would raise it. Yes, left, right and center, everybody has been sort of raising issues of race. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I might add that it, you know, in a sense in for me and for my family and within my studio, it certainly wasn't a new thing because it's pretty much, you know, my daily life in my own <laughs> practice and in my own family uh, for lots of reasons it's a, it's a sort of constant ongoing discussion and has been ever since I got married and had children so mm-hmm. in terms of sort of my own conversations as it were uh, it, it's not anything new but in terms of kind of the wider world around it uh, yeah I think um, there's been a powerful shift certainly that I have experienced this Mm. summer so far.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting That um, because it's the same with me. Of course, the conversations within my family just continued as they had been doing before all of the protests happened. But what did change in the conversations that we were having was our response to how other people were responding. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Our our white friends. And and, um, I think that's definitely um affected the way that I sort of look at things within my work moving forward I you know it really exemplified to me that we are within our own echo chambers and perhaps the conversations and the understanding about the issues surrounding race aren't as developed in this country as perhaps I thought and the the reactions to the protests really showed me that. And I wondered what you did notice and how other people were coming to you and if that will affect the way in which, you know, if that will come into your work at some point, or perhaps it's too early to tell. But it's definitely affected my my work. It's made me realise how much of an echo chamber that I am in, you know.
2: I mean I think that's really interesting and I've sort of I've been really thinking about that because differently from you and your experience you know I'm a white woman I grew up without having to think about any of these issues not 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 at all barely at all other than you know the odd thing that might come up about race at my primary school or whatever but I and I grew up in Stockwell and you know, the time of the Brixton riots and so on. But other than that, you know, it's not something I've ever, ever had to think about. So it was only when I got married to a black man, but also somebody in public life, uh, my husband's David Lammy, the member of parliament for Tottenham. And, you know, so it's also many of these issues are, are his work and his life. And there's lots of consequences to that um, for his family, as well as for him personally. Uh, But then I had, uh, I've had three children. And, you know, from day one, it's been
1: incredibly
2: important to me to think about, you know, what it means to have three children who just by virtue of the color of their skin have a completely different experience of the world than me. And so I've made it my work. So I, I think about it also every day what that means. And I've been on my own journey within my family as a mother, as a wife, as a friend, but also, you know, within my work to kind of think about that and understand it and and, and look deeply into it. And actually, you know, you sort of talked about how perhaps undeveloped uh, we are in this country about discussing race. And I must say that you know, I, I had this incredible privilege back in 2008 of spending time with Obama on his first campaign to become president. It was an incredibly uh, deep and rich experience for me, not just as a white woman, but also uh, coming from Britain to experience um, that campaign uh, in America and to really see kind of you know, how different it was, you know, in America to in Britain. And I I sort of came away from that experience, realizing how, in many ways, we see ourselves in Britain as one of the most multicultural places on earth. and, And we see ourselves as sort of, you know, being able to live alongside each other in a Perhaps more functional way than has been possible in America, but actually, I was so struck by how developed uh, conversations on race and identity are in America, like it, you know everybody you know even if they have strong opinions, even you know people who are perhaps racist whatever they're, they're still, there's still there 's a language, and people discuss it often frequently in newspapers with each other. And yet, I would come back to Britain, and it's almost kind of, I f- would feel like a taboo subject. And, yeah. you know, there I was, I married um, a black man, and it was something I barely could discuss with my family. Um, yeah. it, you know, at our wedding, the sermon it was sort of, you know, started off about that. And I, I remember vividly a lot of my white, our white <laughs> friends and family finding that really sort of saying to me why did he have to go mention that yeah so literally they said why did whereas all you know all David my husband's black family thought it was absolutely fantastic that he the way they all were like god how he talked about that was so wonderful and and uh, all my family and our white friends were like you know he didn't need to point that out you know and I think that the sort of you know, idea that somehow we've kind of moved past explicit racism has created a situation for many people in this country where they they don't want to discuss it because they feel the minute they discuss it they're somehow no longer not seeing it. And 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 actually that creates an incredibly stifling and environment, I think. Um mm. I agree. My experience this summer was actually a kind of unleashing, in a sense, in Britain of that kind of taboo, stifled, you know, difficulty for white people, I might add, not black people, uh, in in talking about race. That has been definitely a, a big shift, I think.
1: Hey, it's Lou here with a quick break to tell you about the remaining two episodes of a four-part collaboration between Shade and Convergence, the South London Gallery's platform for critical conversations, screenings, and written commissions. On Saturday, March the 20th, I will be in conversation with Susan Butler. Season is a writer, performance artist, and teacher. Her debut novel, Signet, was published in 2020 and received winner of the Writers Guild First Novel Award together we will be exploring the racial empathy gap in literature. And for our fourth and final episode on Saturday April the 17th I will be in conversation with sound artist and poet Axel Cacoutier. Axel is a multi-award winning audio artist and poet so be sure to catch our conversation as bonus content wherever you download Shade Podcast or on the South London Gallery website. Okay let's get back to today's show. I think that's interesting that you mentioned the you know the elephant in the room, and the opposite of that is the the sense of empowerment that people within the black community and mixed race people feel um when they do talk about it and that we do share our experience and have these open conversations and what's also very powerful is how. We get this sense of empowerment through art and through symbolism and and the images that we we use to depict our experiences. And one of those very iconic symbols that the Black Lives Matter movement have used and before then the Black Panthers, uh, one of the symbols was the raised, clenched fist that did become iconic as a a symbol of resistance. And in 2008, you've just mentioned this, that you gained unprecedented uh, artistic access to Barack Obama's presidential campaign, which culminated in your series of work entitled In Seven Days. And can you just tell us a little bit about how you created that particular piece that depicted this gesture, this symbol, the raised, clenched fist, and why you chose it as one of your final pieces?
2: Well, when I asked him if I could spend time with him on his campaign, there was no sense actually that he was going to win, mm-hmm. <laughs> I might add. I mean, um, you know, my family and the people I knew thought that, you know, I was quite mad to be investing <laughs> quite so much time, effort and money in going over to America. For me as a white mother, I was motivated to to witness this moment on behalf of my Uh, two children who had just been born and were too young to kind of experience it and understand it Mm. and um, I felt you know my husband knew Obama and I felt that I had a kind of possibility of sort of uh, spending time on this campaign and thinking about it as an artist and as a mother as a white mother of Uh, children that look like Obama that would be the kind of inheritors if you like of the legacy and at the point that I started of the legacy of just him even thinking and contemplating running and then you know managing a kind of extraordinary campaign. For me um, you know I'd spent time looking the role models there would be for my boys as every mother on the planet does when they have their children and there were so few outside of popular culture that just the idea of him even running was was so powerful in my mind for me to be able to talk about with with my boys and so I went off and I spent time on his campaign. And I, I quickly realized that actually everybody else there were, were they were politicians, they were working on the campaign, or they were, or they were press, or they were people going to listen, you know, and if they were going to listen, they were just going to one rally in the area that they lived, basically. And that, that, I realized that going to multiple rallies, multiple events, being there next to him on election night on inauguration, as well as at different rallies around the country, you know, when it was going well, when it was going badly, that actually I, I, I had this kind of incredible perspective, but also I wasn't sort of restricted by having to think about producing an image or taking a photo or making something for the next day's news and what it meant in that moment. But I I was able just to think about it in terms of the future and the legacy and what it would mean for my children when they were grown up, basically. And Mm -hmm. so in answer to your question about how I came up with that image and um, it, actually, it took me two and a half years um, mm-hmm. to come up with that image. In fact, to come up you know, with, I, I, I ended up making seven images that are part of the In Seven Days series. And that is the second one. I call it Day Two Struggle. And all seven took a very long time to get to. And they are part of a kind of complete narrative, which in as all seven, they tell the story of what it takes to create something impossible they tell the story of creation they tell the story of the cycle of of change the cycle of democracy um so there's a kind of a big meta-narrative to all seven images but you know day two struggle in that meta-narrative is is kind of the history of what's gone before and what came before to make this moment possible if you like and so on one level that image is, is about all the people that came before obama and as you say that you know that that stretches back through uh, actually everybody that has used that raised fist. And that is not just black movements, uh, but but famously, of course, Mandela used it in in that kind of a Mandela gesture as he came out. Mm Of prison. So it was, it's, it, it was and still is used in an incredibly powerful way in, in, in South Africa. And before that, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, as, as well as that moment in the Olympics. Uh, but it's been used by women's movements for, it, it, in a way, really through history, it's been used as a gesture of solidarity, of kind of power, of strength, of struggle, and of kind of, symbolizing how to overcome something, if you like. Mm -hmm. So it has a real long stretch through history uh, that I wanted to kind of refer to and think about because nobody comes out of nowhere. And, you know, Obama himself talked often about how many people before him had done so much work. So I was really thinking about it is in fact his hand and his fist but i that image for me was really thinking about the the history of that symbol and that kind of long arc of time if you like going backwards and the the rest of the series kind of addresses um what that symbol will mean in the long arc of Time going forward, if you like, and what it will mean to our children and what will their struggles be and what will they want to overcome, you know, and how will they overcome it? And they will have to find their own power and their own strength in whatever struggles they face. It's absolutely not limited to kind of one part of society, if you like, but of course, you know, it, it is most as- associated with oppression and people who've been oppressed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. If you know, and in many ways, the 20th century was defined by racial struggles across the world, and Obama's election at the beginning of the 21st century was an incredible moment. It's not the end of the story by any means, but it was an incredible culmination of that century of struggle, if you like. Um, So, I was thinking about all of that, but I was also thinking about his struggle and how he had got to the place he'd got to. And I read Dreams from My Father, his book, which is really a book that is an exploration, a deep exploration of his heritage and who he is and where he's come from. And I was so struck by how kind of forensically he'd thought about his his mixed heritage and all the difficulties that come with that as well as the blessings and I think that this for me is an image about how every single one of us on the planet are only able to kind of find our power and find what we can uniquely give to the world if we if we kind of go through that struggle of understanding who we are and where we've come from and that's actually a challenge for all of us wherever we've come from and so I think that you know it was it was really striking to me that he'd done so much work on understanding where he'd come from and so that kind of led me to thinking about my own children and my role as the white mother of kind of you know being part of that journey for them and then there's a kind of another layer uh, of that image where I wanted to think about how we depict people through art in different ways and skin color is a kind of you know is it is an important part of that and I've been really concerned and thinking about how um, artists kind of depict different people and different skin colors and what we use to kind of strengthen those narratives and tell those narratives and of course one of the most powerful narratives ever made is the renaissance artists kind of depicting the holy family as white i mean it's kind of the most incredible whitewashing in yeah, yeah. In, in, in in our history really because they weren't it's a lie and yeah. yet You know, that is so powerful now. It's in in most people's imagination in all parts of the world. And part of how they did that was by also using the most expensive materials. And if you think of churches and Renaissance paintings and the Sistine Chapel, that they used gold and gold leaf. And that almost kind of heightened the value and legitimized this narrative. So I started to use gold. And I did this work on contemporary slavery. And I used the most expensive 24-carat gold that I could get my hands on. Nice. So this image, uh, Day 2 Struggle, that I've made also uses that 24-carat gold leaf. And, and for me, it's about value and how we value different people and how we kind of depict skin color. And it's about the value I saw of my own children and how they would value themselves. But also, it's kind of thinking about how... The people around them and society in the world would see them and value them. So, you know, all the color in all of these works I thought about, you know, so much. But it, yeah, that gold leaf was a sort of really important part of that, uh, of that image for me.
1: I don't think we can underestimate the our own experiences and you've discussed it here and how your experiences of being a mother to, to mixed race children has obviously infiltrated your work just as my experiences and my own families have um, affected the work that, that I do. And I just wonder how your your own multi-faith and mixed race family has provided inspiration for perhaps any other series that you've worked on because I have been spending quite a bit of time engaging with your Encounters series in, mm. particularly and, and I just wonder you know what what's resonated most for you throughout this series or any other work that you've done and um, when you've been thinking about the ideas of difference? Well I,
2: I mean I feel really lucky I mean I feel incredibly lucky to have a job that I get to make this I <laughs> I get to make the things that I'm interested in my yeah. my work and my job. Yeah. Um, yeah. Since I've had children, uh, all of my work has been 100% on this topic. And I can say that my family and uh, my children in particular have inspired all of it and have led me to this journey. The work I did, The Dance of Colour, was sort of a work thinking about um, how carnival uh, is a sort of culmination of it it really of indigenous African and European cultures. And I sought and people are kind of really familiar with, uh, you know, the music that kind of came out of that. Uh, But actually I was really interested in the kind of visual imagery of that, of how that came to pass and, 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 and how that's sort of developed. And obviously in a way that was an exploration of my own family and, uh, you know, was an incredible journey for me. Um, but encounters, I think, encounters has been ten years in the making, and is is a reflection of my own family history as well as my husband's, and 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 kind of thinking about you know the difficulties, I suppose, in in any um, mixed heritage, mixed religion, you know, family difference is one of the most kind of incredible fulfilling amazing journeys that you can go on when you when you are able to kind of accommodate and, and learn from other people and live alongside it but it's it's also it, you know as i'm sure you know also raises lots of challenges and can be very difficult and and so in that kind of difficulty comes out all the most some of the most beautiful um parts of being human, if you like. But I guess I I landed on encounters partly because religious difference in many ways is the most absolute difference as, as human beings that we have. There's no room in a way for any kind of gray areas with faith because Uh, especially kind of missionary faiths, you know, you believe in, you have your belief and it it, by definition excludes all others. So I was really interested in the last decade, really since 9-11, where religious leaders from around the world started to kind of challenge that themselves and with each other and began to start working out how they could kind of articulate their respect for each other and each other's faith without in any way undermining the absolute nature of their own faith. I persuaded the religious leaders to let me sit in on those private meetings over the course of 10 years. And this work is is really a kind of culmination of that journey that they were on, that I have sort of documented and charted in this work and then kind of spent years you know, thinking about in all kinds of different ways, and I could go on about that for hours. <laughs> but what I would say of why I think it relates quite beautifully to what you're talking about in The racist Fist and, and, and the work of In Seven Days is that actually the kind of interfaith movement really began in the civil rights era with Martin Luther King getting um, different religious leaders to walk with him on the civil rights journey. I think that you know it's quite powerful in people's minds that when Rabbi Heschel marched, you know, side by side with Martin Luther King on on the march from Selma to Mount Montgomery.
0: From all over the country,
1: I suspect that we will have representatives from almost every state in the union, and naturally a large number of people from the state of Alabama. And we hope to see, and we plan to see. The greatest witness for freedom ever taken place, that has ever taken place on the steps of the capital of any state in the South. And
2: And that was a kind of defining image of of the civil rights movement and, and a kind of a shift, if you like. And similarly, Desmond Tutu and Mandela got different religious leaders in South Africa to also kind of walk with them um, on the journey the anti-apartheid uh, movement and and that too kind of really made a big difference to how that struggle was kind of understood not just in South Africa but around the world so I think that you know how as human beings we have moved towards kind of understanding each other's difference is an in- it's incredibly complex, uh, but it's incredibly important part of what it means to be human. And, and so, yeah, both series of work for me are really an exploration of that. Mm-hmm.
1: And you talk about this long journey that we are on and we are all on this together collectively. And what light do you see within the work that the art community are collectively doing in particular that gives you hope that we are progressing to so the work that people are creating the discussions that we are having the messages that the institutions are are giving and what light do you see that is giving you hope that things are moving forward nicola
2: well you know in 2015, curator David A. Bailey and myself set up the Diaspora Pavilion, and that had been a long kind of conversation in the making before it actually turned into reality mm. and kind of culminated in the Diaspora Pavilion in the 2017 Venice Biennale and at the time that was you know the first of its kind ever not just in this country but in the world Um, in the art world it was you know it was really a big deal Mm. and it began all kinds of discussions within the art world but I, I think that what I would think is that this year those discussions which felt like a struggle like a long you know long road to kind of inching forward it's not like anything is remotely solved because it takes years and years and years but I think that the kind of desire and the sort of understanding that the art world in this country needs to to change the idea that uh you know Art, artists, the art world—it it should be sort of the vanguard, if you like, of of, of progress and change. And actually, it hasn't been mm, yeah. in 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 this country. It really hasn't. It's been almost exclusively white. Yeah. I think that there's a kind of understanding that that's that's not right. Actually, what what happens to, in practice, change that is much more difficult and takes uh, a longer time. But I think at least um, it is a shift uh, that, you know... Accepting in a wider sense that, that it's a problem, I think, is obviously the first thing that has to happen before any real change can kind of happen. And so I think I, I'm very, I'm hopeful that, uh, uh, that things will change. And I, I certainly see lots of people willing and wanting to make change. It takes generations, really, to make a difference, especially when the issues are systemic, um, because it starts at childhood. And I think that to become an artist to, to, in any form, to, to go into the arts is, is difficult and a hard route for anybody. Uh, if you are disadvantaged if, in any shape or form, uh, it's going to be you know, a thousand times harder. So you know, so the shifts all have to ha- start happening from childhood. Mm. And, and that's challenging. You can't just sort of, you know, you can make a few differences in the art world for and with adults, but actually the real, real job of work is to shift expectations, opportunities and so on uh, for children. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Hey, it's Lou here, and as we round up this episode, I want to share my thoughts on my conversation with Nicola. Gaining artistic access to Barack Obama's campaign trail is clearly a result of being a brilliant and successful artist, as well as having familial ties with Obama. This is how access works. Was her access because she was white? No. However, in many instances, we know that it is, and we've talked about institutional gatekeepers at length, so we don't need to elaborate on that. But the problem with the messaging that we do give artists is that success, in whatever terms you view that, comes quickly. And that's misguided. The relationships we build take time alongside our practice. And what's important is where privilege is taken beyond one's own work and career elevation, and we need to see more of that. I reached out to Nicola, not only because of her own practice, but because of her focus on supporting emerging artists. We didn't touch on that in the chat, so I wanted to just mention it here. But she mentored the brilliant artist Kadia Say, who at the age of 24 was the youngest artist to show at the Diaspora Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. The pavilion was co-founded by Nicola to support artists of colour who have not had access to these institutional markers of success. But Kadia's life was taken from her in the Grenfell Tower fire, and we know why that happened. And despite the opportunities that Kadia had, ultimately, that did not and could not save her. She was from an immigrant family living in a council tower block. And all of the lives that were taken on the 14th of June 2017 were taken by those who were very conscious of their gross negligence, but continued to ignore the needs of the residents. Following the tragedy in 2019, Nicola set up the Cadia Say Arts Program at INTO University where Cadia had received her own learning. And the program works with organizations, artists, schools and young people, encouraging them in their creative studies and careers. And this is what we need to see. Real long-term support for talented artists, the kind of support that institutions ring-fence us out of. This is the opposite of paying lip service, of posting social media statements, of institutions creating their optical allyship with their one-off initiatives. Until those with privilege and power step up and share their spaces, which is ultimately a misnomer in itself, right, because we know how these galleries were built, but there's little space for us to accept what little has been on offer from them to this point. So don't just accept what is given, take up space, live your truth through the power of the work that you create because it's been a long time coming okay that's it for this episode and i'll see you next time If you enjoyed this show, please support the work by subscribing via whatever app you listen to your podcasts on and consider becoming a Shade patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast. Shade is produced and hosted by me, Lou Menser, and the music is created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson, half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Thanks to Content is Queen for assistant editing and to C.A. Davis for editing, mixing and sound design. Be sure to listen to C.A.'s own brilliant show called A Latte Thought. I'll let C.A. tell you a little bit about that now. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
0: My name is C.A. Davis. And this is a lot of thought an immersive podcast that dismantles post-racial myths about mixed-race identities. Analyzing American history, law, and empire, each episode examines a contemporary idea about mixed-raceness in order to reveal that race is the lie that became real. You see, in America, mixed-race people have been routinely exploited to both justify and challenge systems of white supremacy.
2: The hypo-descent rule became the formalized
1: definition of hereditary slavery.
0: But people are not mixed. History is mixed.
1: In the early 20th century, in Harlem, New Orleans, Black and South Asian peoples made lives together. The Creek
0: Nation and the Cherokee Nation join at Greenwood and Asher, right where the Tulsa riots occurred. And it's those historical processes of empire, war, immigration, economics that mix us all up. The idea that mixed race people are somehow more biologically, genetically fit. I mean, that's just not true.
2: Some multiracial people say, yes, they are black, but it doesn't encompass the fullness of, say, being raised by a Korean mom.
0: So tune in as academic research and histories are brought to rich, sonic life and woven together with the voices of intellectuals leading their fields. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, both at LATO underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T and subscribe on your favorite podcast app today. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.